This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And am I? Should I go with, I might be missing? No, I'm Dave. And I'm the Machine. And Dave's face is on the side of a milk carton. A podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The Machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film missing name of missing person don't you have this written down somewhere i've answered it a thousand times name of missing person please you've been in touch with our embassy down there well, senator all they seem to know is that my son is missing date of disappearance he's been gone two weeks he could be hurt or tortured time of disappearance i look from everywhere he's just gone vanished After analyzing all the data, we still come to the conclusion that he must be in hiding. You know damn well. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show, since, you know, the machine doesn't want to help us pay for these movies. And plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there, so that's pretty fun. Dave, I do want to get in. I can't wait to get into talking a little bit more about this film. A film, I don't want to speak for you. A film I would say that both of us have never heard of in our lives. Is that a fair sentiment? Yeah, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Which is odd, because yeah. we're supposed to be in the Oscar list, and I've never heard of this movie before. Best Picture nominee, starring Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek, directed by a pretty, at the time, well-known director, dealing with some pretty high-profile political intrigue, mm-hmm. real political intrigue. Not that we know anything about it. Right, right, right. I'm just saying, right. never heard of it, so I'm, I'm excited to get into it with you but before we get to talking about this week's film we do need to progress the plot a little bit oh god you know we have a deep and rich fiction here at kyle and dave versus the machine and so oh yeah we need to spread our web out of all these intricate storylines that are intersecting with one another and culminating in a perfectly told three-act structure over the course of 52 weeks have you met Didi yet uh yes you did yeah remember the per- remember the lady who is subleasing part of our old abandoned warehouse here we've tried to start an right. arcade and ddhs dds has this the set up shop here in a little area yes <laughs> it's yeah i got it D- yeah she she's a f- female she is a female a dentist okay, yeah. in 1982. Oh, we are right. stuck in the year 1982. Physically, are actually in the year of 1982. So that was supposed to be a joke, right? Um, I'm sure she'll become important later on, Dave, as we continue through better. our year. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Oh, she's just she's yelling at us off off mic here, Dave. Yeah, you too. Uh-huh. Boy, deep and rich fiction. Deep and rich wow. fiction. I'm I'm with it. I, I understand. I think that makes a total of one person. I think there's three people that we want to go into, two of which we have already talked about, so we don't have to spend like a That's bunch right. of time on them. Uh, first and foremost, Jack Lemon. We just talked about Jack Lemon 
in the apartment uh, when we were in kind right. of our uh, between seasons section of our podcast. So Purgatory. anything more you want to say about Jack Lemmon? Are you going to uh, print a retraction no. about your feelings towards Jack Lemmon? No, not really. I, I think that, uh, you know, Jack Lemmon is a highly decorated American actor. <laughs> yeah, that is a factual statement. Yes. <laughs> no, we, we spoke to him. Uh, we spoke about him sort of ad nauseum in the apartment because that's a great movie. Not that this w- w- will not be, not that we've seen it yet. I'm yeah. still, you know, I'm still a little bit caught that we have never heard of this movie before. Yeah. Because uh, as an American uh, audience, he's already, he's still a pretty big deal at yeah. this point in his career. I mean, we will perhaps find out why, but uh, sure. it's kind of weird, right? He was nominated for this film too. I was going to save this until later, but it makes maybe sense to bring it up now. I actually think it's kind of an interesting crossover here because I would say that this is Jack Lemmon kind of getting to the end of his career. Because after this, mm. it, like, there's about a decade of like nothing. Like He does really nothing. A couple movies here and there, does some TV appearances, but like nothing recognizable, nothing that has any cultural influence until he has that kind of career resurgence in like the early to mid 90s with like Grumpy Old Man. But he did a bunch of like supporting things in, like JFK and some other films and stuff like that too. But this is the start really of Sissy Spacek. She had just got an Oscar for Coal Miner's Daughter and was kind of becoming like this new face of of Hollywood, American I guess, in, in some ways. Acting, sure. Yeah. Young and old kind of crossing over here in this movie. We talked about Sissy Spacek in The Straight Story. That's correct. Yeah, Straight so you, Story? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can go back Your and listen to us about that. Your favorite movie of 1999? I think it's a good movie. I think that's a good movie. You, you hate it because it has a tractor in it, so you automatically yeah. have to hate it. Well, what's not to like about a movie about a tractor driving straight? Uh-huh. <laughs> Gripping. That's a... <laughs> Gross, uh, <laughs> a gross misrepresentation of what that movie's about, but sure. Well, uh, well, how would you sum it up? There's an old man on a tractor and he drives in a straight line. His, his brother is dying. He hasn't talked to him in, in like 30 years. It's a journey of the human spirit, Dave, as he learns more about not just himself, but America. Anyways, um, so this is basics, big deal. I don't know. We've talked about these people so much. I can't remember if there's any controversy or anything sort of gossipy but um mm-hmm. you know she's in a lot of good movies she's been awarded a lot of good things just like jack lemon mm-hmm. i think maybe this is a little unfair but they're kind of past their prime so they're not really in the public consciousness anymore unless you're oh, you like know, now, re-watching like in 2022 old films. you're yeah. saying yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. it's kind of hard to find stuff that i care about i'm in a mood today i had to walk to deliver my son's forgotten lunch in 1982 you had to walk I, oh my goodness Dave, I'm, that's uh, that's weird spaced out right now <laughs> yeah i always find it interesting of course like sissy spacek is still alive but she's in that part of her career now where if she is in a movie she shows up for like five or eight minutes as like the grandmother or like i don't know the mother of a character wow. and it's like but that's sissy spacek why is <laughs> she could do a she's lot more than my thing. mom she's probably just tired Maybe. Right, like there's there's seventy three this year. It's like fuck off. Mm-hmm. I mean, some some actresses or and actors who have that energy to go and to go and push it. What's her name? Uh, Jane Fonda's out there mm-hmm. slinging it. But we can't all compare ourselves to people like that. We can't all be Clint Eastwood, who's like 92? you know throwing out bangers, you know, every three years into his nineties. Although you know we could argue that he fell off a cliff the last uh, two or three movies. But you know, I, maybe she's just chilling. She she was very. I mean, I'm just. 
scrolling through her filmography, this lady worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look at her IMDb. And it's like, holy Jesus. Like the yeah, 80s and 90s, like, it's just packed in as far as film she's been it's in. It's almost a movie a year, a television show a year. It's unbelievable. I mean, mm-hmm. she was busy. So I think she's doing okay. And she's she sang, she did theater, she did everything, right? Pretty sure. The last person I think her. we need to talk about, and I'm going to say up front, I'm going to probably be mispronouncing his name throughout this entire episode, but is Costa Garbus. Do you know anything about this gentleman? No, I didn't. Who's Costa Garbus? He's the director of this movie. Oh, Costa Gavras. Okay. I was like, he's, I think, I'm pretty sure when you listen back, you said actor. Oh, did I? Sorry. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, I don't think anybody by that name was, oh yeah. Mm. Costa Gavras. Well, we did, um, I did a little bit of snooping. I don't know him that well. And no. he won for a movie called Z- Zed, as we say. No, it's called and Z. I've, but we talked about this I've movie never, already. Uh, yeah, but I've never seen it. So no, I, can't... I haven't either. But it was the inspiration behind The French Connection. Like that is what the big inspiration to make that movie was. That movie is also the first movie to be, you should know this, nominated for both Best Picture and Best Foreign Film in the same year. Right. Yeah, Come on, so. Kyle. That This is your purview. You're the Oscar. Well, nerd. this is actually a bit, of a, a bit of a snub happened this year, in fact, because it doesn't happen very often when it was five Best Picture nominees and five directors. But Missing is nominated for Best Picture, but Custer Garvis is not nominated for Best Director. <laughs> uh-huh. He's the only one who isn't. So there's the four other ones that get nominated and Das Boot, the director of Das Boot is nominated in his spot, in quote-unquote his spot, for Best Director. Yeah, just looking at this filmography, I've never seen any of his work. I did read the synopsis for Amen that came out in 2002. Have you heard of that movie? No, not really. Uh, he's been making, he directed a movie in 2019. Like, he's still yeah, working. adults in the room. Uh, sorry, I didn't know that. I'm just reading this here. But yeah, Amen was listed on Wikipedia because it's based on a play that suggests that the Pope was complicit, or at least... Uh, knew about the uh, concentration camps and the mm. slaughter of the Jewish people in World War II and decided willfully to do nothing about it. This man likes a good controversy. I, I was going to say, though, is, is that controversy, though? Because people knew that the concentration camps were there at the time. Like, that's not... They knew I, that, I that was happening. The play. I haven't seen the play. I, we also have this... Um, we have this perspective of hindsight so for example when we talk about films of this nature and we talk about oh now we know the u.s uh, was involved in basically every major political coup starting from world war ii probably before then until uh today but a lot of people didn't want to believe that particularly in the 70s and 80s uh i mean we could argue how vietnam was uh coloring and bring up some cynicism in the american government but the average public wouldn't believe it right i mean you look at these dictators And everybody's like, oh, there's no way, there's no way my leaders would uh, sully themselves against their Christian values. <laughs> Fucking idiots, man. Yeah. This is, what's this character you've just developed, Dave? I'm, there's a rich backstory my, I learned Americana, more. you know. I'm, uh, I'm moody today. It's great. Well, here's the hard <laughs> thing, though, because we're now in the year 1982. We've gone through the entire 70s. I mean, this podcast hasn't, but the, the 70s is kind of known mm-hmm. as being the disillusionment of the whole idea of like Americana and Americans standing up for what is right and just and stuff like that. That propaganda seemingly was crumbling. But I guess, I don't know, maybe I'm answering my own question here. 
Reagan maybe was the return of like, yeah, now we're the best again. Like, this is the the man who's going to bring back uh, what America stands for, even though he was doing all the worst things, too, in the background. But you know what I mean? Like, there's maybe that's the idea here. I call Ronald Reagan daddy. Yeah, I mean, he created what Noriega, technically the Mm -hmm. Taliban at this era, Chile. I mean, actually, this might have been 70. South America was where they like to... uh, metal yeah, yeah and yeah this is not <laughs> the what this movie's talking about has nothing to do with ronald reagan it's an, a nixon story more than anything else i wonder i mean we should get a political theorist to comment on this but i wonder if you have this gearing up of the language of polarizing politics through the 70s and by the 80s it's perfected because well, reagan yeah. for example is elected by the entire country i mean when is the last time you see like a, a one-party sweep of the entire nation. And I think Reagan's the last one because by the time uh, by the time Bush and who's and Clinton are in, you get all these new zones of contested states and states essentially declaring a color. But the Reagan map in eighty or whenever the, his first election is shocking. It's mm-hmm. uh, the whole country wanted this actor. And whatever his messaging, I don't think Nancy was out there hating drugs yet. I think his whole platform was to stand on a horse and to talk about American values. Cocaine helps with that, but um, I don't know. People, I think people in the 80s wanted to stop being so upset at things. I think that's true. I mean, broadly true. I will will just point out one thing here. Yes. Uh, Just to be honest, I guess, with what we just proclaimed here. Ronald Reagan cleaned up in what they call like the electoral electoral vote, meaning like he won 47 of the 50 states. Like he he mm-hmm. crushed it as far as like, or 46 maybe. tally. Uh-huh. Oh no, 44. He, he, he took 44 of the 50 states, which is astronomical. Like that this does not happen nowadays. He only actually received 50.7% of the total vote but Popular that vote. that even is like hard to do nowadays. Does that stat show how many people voted? No, uh, no. Well, it does. I'd have to do some quick math here. He oh, got okay. forty-three million votes to Jimmy Carter's thirty-five million votes. So yeah, still U.S. voter engagement is so pathetic. To be fair, though, nineteen eighty-four yeah. in his re-election, he won forty-nine of the fifty states. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he got fifty-eight percent of the vote. So yes, he crushed it through the eighties. Like. That just doesn't, again, remember, does not happen anymore to, to carry it that much. There's a lot of comic books in the 90s that parody this and mm-hmm. talk and kind of posit how Reagan was so close to essentially becoming a next American or the first American dictator because his Reaganomic, I mean, he's got a whole economic system that's, a, you know, a play off his name. So I'm speaking of a turn because I haven't done the full research. A part of me wonders, had Reagan not been suffering from alzheimer's in his final couple years like if he was 15 years younger let's just say he was 15 years younger and it was in the 1980s i wonder if that's what the ploy would or ploy but what the game plan would have been it's like let's uh, do an fdr and and uh, expand it so that you can be elected a third time and like just keep it keep it going because he was popular enough like he would have he would have won like when first bush went in he would have gone in easily he's pretty weird polarizing character but I mean, he is a cultural icon for America. Sure. It is fascinating when, it's like Obama, when a leader of a country becomes sort of defining for their culture, Reagan's like that in the 80s. And how that truly reflects in the film industry is really difficult. There's always a delay, particularly now, it takes so long to make a movie. I mean, we were bagging, I can't remember what episode it was on Adam McKay's uh, piece of show, oh, for the Oscars. But that movie's probably in development conceptually when Trump's in charge because, you sure. know, that's just how movies are these days. But 
looking at 1971, it feels like people were banging out a movie a month. <laughs> They're a lot more topical because, you know, it was just quicker on the turn. So, something like this, I would imagine, even though it's adapted from a book from the 70s, uh, you know, you could just kind of throw out a movie in six months. So, is this more a reflection of American cynicism? I have no idea. I do think that there is a, a bit of that. I mean, again, I think you, the the seeds of this were started in the 1970s. And I think that the division is becoming more apparent here in the 80s. But I think that there is a huge split between like the younger actors, who I would say split, yeah, more into like that left-leaning liberal side of things. And the old-timers will say that they split more over into the right-wing conservative, conservative side, side of things you know like ronald reagan and dean martin and everyone were like pals around there as were like you know anyway name an old actor that was still around in the 80s well, they're the ones who were able to navigate huac right uh, well huac wasn't even around anymore it was like 20 no, years but they in were the past, but... they're part of that generation so if they survived blacklisting sure. they're already leaning really into pa american patriotism as they mm -hmm. grow up right right and all of the uh blacklisted folks they're having kids who are like fuck the system because ronald reagan did start as an actor as well you can kind of start to see those connections he has in hollywood right so i don't think it wasn't mm. until years later where really the huge criticism started coming for him because he had a lot of friends that were still in the entertainment industry and he could right. not necessarily like dictate what they said but could lean on them a little bit if he thought people were you know going out of turn i could be misremembering this but i feel like because he was an actor there's something about how he was part of this new use of photography as a political weapon. And sure. so, he has these great stage shots of riding on a horse. Like to, to bring back, like you're bringing up this old time American idealism. It's morning in America again, Dave. That was his campaign yeah. slogan. So, I mean, photography and media and film have always been used as uh, political tools, of course, from both mm -hmm. sides. But I think this is the beginning of a very polarizing yeah uh, power it's it's kind of weird yeah well let's jump into that then i mean again this is this movie specifically is not directly going against reagan but it is i think fascinating how this somewhat predicts something that is going to be a huge scandal for the whole reagan administration but we'll get into that let's dave go and uh, thank some sponsors we'll leave some snacks out for the listeners here and when we come back what about your dentist you should feed her She's fine, all right? She she can, she can fend for herself. She's got floss and toothbrushes yeah. over there. When we come back, we'll be uh, talking a little bit more about the movie Missing. Scat it. They should add one where you just scat it. <laughs> Personal banking, man. By the way, have you ever watched the Jungle Book, the, the Disney version of the Jungle Book, the cartoon? Like the cartoon? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I can't say that I'm proud of this, but there is a song that happens in the middle of that movie where like Baloo, Mowgli, and Bagheera are going into King Louis' kingdom there, mm -hmm. and he's singing that little song, King Louis' mm -hmm. song, which is basically half yeah. scatting. I can do that entire song with all the correct uh, scat words in it. Wow. So, oh, wow. If we Still. ever do 1967, whenever not. that movie came yeah. out, I will, yeah. uh, I will bust It'll that break out. It out. I should start off by saying that Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, we're brought to you by Rumi. So if you're in Calgary here, at least, 
things have been kind of weird. It was cold and it was warm and it was cold and now it's warming up again. But with warmer weather comes yard work and lots of it. You have to prune your trees and shrubs. You have to clean your eaves troughs, gutters for Ooh. everyone else not in Canada. Replace those drafty windows you noticed over the winter. Or instead of doing any of that, you can call Rumi to take care of all of your outdoor and indoor spring home maintenance while you fire up the barbecue and relax. I would be livid if I came to, to clean someone's eavesdrops and he's just like barbecuing in the back uh, back corner. <laughs> hey, Doing man. a good job, boy. Doing a good job. Eavesdrops up there, man. Hey, you got some dirty leaves in my sandwich. Not bad. <laughs> That'd yeah. be great. Perfect <laughs> hot dog and a bunch of glopped of gross decaying leaves falls right into it. Which, by the way, is basically what sauerkraut is. Visit rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, or get a paper and pen, because you can call 1-844-777-7864, and let Rumi's trusted local experts take care of your yard, so all you have to do is enjoy it. You know what I like the idea of? What's that? We still think phone numbers are relevant, when now you just Google and click a link. Right. Pretty much. Yeah. You just click contact just and you press the numbers and then it dials for you. Gun to my head, Dave. I do not know what your phone number is. Would have no I, clue what your phone number is. <laughs> that used to be a thing, right? You have to memorize all your friends' phone numbers. I I can hardly remember my... I, yeah. The only one I know is I don't is know like, my brother's cell phone. I don't know no. my sister's cell phone number. I know my parents' home phone because it was the phone number I grew up with. And Me I know too. my one friend Jamie's number because it was, again, in the time when I had to remember phone numbers. And he hasn't changed it in 15 years. So it's the, oh, he still has, the, oh, wow. only, the two, the only two numbers I can remember. I mean, I know Helen's, but that's just now we've got to get Emerson to memorize well, them. If we're ever arrested, you can call your wife and I can call my friend who probably won't answer <laughs> his phone. <laughs> it's like, who is this? How do you have this number? All right. Well, our other sponsor is uh, ATB. Kyle, what does that stand for again? I don't even remember. That's the Alberta Treasury Branch. Treasury Branch. Treasury Branch. I wonder what kind of tree. It's like a great mouthfeel. Not to throw the bank under the bus here, but Treasury Branch. It doesn't feel good to say those words together. There's rules, right? About being able to be called a bank. It's like a university and college. And also, if they call themselves a bank, RBC and uh, TD will come and murder their families because uh, they're basically a mafia. I got uh, I got a degree in business from DeVry. Are you saying that that's not good? Is DeVry still around? Probably not. It probably got arrested. <laughs> Everyone associated with that was arrested. Did, All I remember is did we they always ourselves? played the late night commercials, usually when I was watching Conan in university. Yeah. And I, those, I always, it's like, you can get a degree in business, computers. And it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> that means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a degree in computers. Great. Uh, yep, all that's right, a computer. Well, let's... Great. Four years of schooling. Well spent. <laughs> it's a box. It's got lights on it. At ATB, we make banking work for you with expert and practical advice in everyday banking and investment planning expertise and management service with ATB Wealth. You can be confident that you're making smart choices. You can be confident that you're making smart choices when it comes to your money. We have a history of doing what's right for our clients, especially when times are tough, because ATB was built to help Albertans. Albertans like Kyle Marshall at Mm. Media Lab YYC. Plug. For more information, visit atb.com. He's halting phrasing for more drama. Did you... 
Appreciate it. I yeah. did appreciate it. All right, Dave, while we're back here, I am very interested to know what you thought about this movie, because I have a lot to say about it, I think. So mm. first and foremost, if someone came to you and asked you, Dave, what is this movie about? How would you describe the plot? Like, just what happens in this movie? Oh, well, that's a hard question. I think sure. there are a minimum of two or three plots. I guess you would say on an emotional level, it's about a father-son relationship and a you know wife, a familial relationship and having to come to terms with your sense of acceptance or reality of that. And then on the other side, it's political intrigue and the implied meddlings of the US government in regime setup in other countries. So they're intertwined really well. This is a great movie. So they're uh, inseparable and yet sort of you'd be surprised that they work so well together because mm -hmm. uh, it navigates a lot of different things. <laughs> How is this movie? Well, we'll talk about it, but it's yeah. amazing that this movie is not known by the general public. You would think that this would have held up a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And, and you know what? I, I will be the first one to admit maybe this is like a Billy Jack situation where in America it really is well known. But mm, I, I, possible, I'm yeah. being very honest when I tell you up until doing this season, I have never heard of this movie in my entire life. And the fact that it stars two pretty big actors uh, inside you of love. it, yep. that it was nominated yep. for Best Picture, you would have thought that at I some know. point I would remember- it one screenplay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That I would have come across this or seen this or have it promoted and it, uh, I just haven't. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just the weird one in this situation, but yeah, it's weird. What did you think about the movie overall though, Dave? Yeah, it was great. I was uh, held in my seat. I think, you know, the beginning of the film intentionally is uh, a little obtuse because you're not really supposed to know where you are in the sense that, you know, like the, the guy that goes missing, yeah. uh, the supporting the, character. The titular missing character. His, uh, his personality is kind of weird and a little bit abrasive. So, it's hard to understand who or what he's supposed to be doing. And then when Sissy Spacek's character comes out and she seems so weak, you're like, I don't even understand this dynamic. Why are they here? And they don't really explicitly answer those questions, which uh, maybe helps in the end um, mm -hmm. to keep this movie uh, wide enough for the general audience instead of becoming too much of a political documentary even. Right. There are uh, elements of it. So, in a plot sense where it kind of, you know, you start questioning some things, but from an acting perspective, you know, Jack Lemmon's great in it. Sissy Spacek uh, has this ability to really build her character up by the end of the film. So, where she starts off being, she looks like a baby when he, when the husband picks her up the first time they meet. I thought it was mm. going to be her, his daughter. So, she literally physically starts off so small and by the end, she becomes quite a powerful force in it. So, this movie, uh, I think it holds up reasonably well. It is a little bit cynical. Uh, are, are we ruining movies? You know, at the end, uh, it's pretty dark. You see a lot of cadavers and it really puts into focus how naive North Americans can be, myself included, whenever I watch films like this about what uh, the rest of the world kind of goes through on a daily mm -hmm. basis. If you read about Venezuela in the last 10 years, it's fucking frightening. But then I can close my app and go right. back and watch something on Netflix. So I was just going to throw China under the bus here. It's because they're committing sure. literally ritual genocide currently right now mm -hmm. as we speak. And we know well, it's happening. China. And we're yeah. not really doing anything about it. Not that I, I agree that me as an individual, I'm going to march over to China and make it stop. But you would think, you would think that world leaders would want to, you know, stop that if they could. Well, here's the central premise of this movie is that all the other world leaders are involved. 
Right. Right? I have all of their phone numbers. And that's the naivety. We believe, for example, that, oh, Justin Trudeau, you got to go over there and say, Uyghurs are good people and they shouldn't kill them. But all these world leaders have vested interests in why China's destroying that population. I can't remember, uh, my friend Babur told me, is it oil or I can't remember what they, what's underneath that area. They don't, they're not destroying the Uyghurs in, in China for their physical labor and their prowess as slaves. They're enslaving because they want something under the land. Sure. Uh, it also borders into Pakistan. So, I think like the world is so much more complex than we want it to believe and people are, uh, the leaders are so much more complicit and cynical <laughs> than we mm-hmm. want to uh, admit. And, uh, and that's the kind of throughput of films like this where you have to go, oh, people aren't nice, Kyle. This, I'm not trying to make a joke or anything. I'm pretty sure you actually pronounce it Uyghurs is how you pronounce uh, that group, but no, I could be completely not, wrong. But that's okay. Yeah, yeah. That's, I heard, yeah. I watched a documentary and that's how they pronounce it the entire time. So, maybe well, they were wrong. when Babur says it, he's yeah. got a, he, there's a guttural, mm, like a Uyghurs. Gotcha. Yeah. gotcha. I don't want to turn this podcast into be like, let's have Dave and Kyle try and awkwardly talk about world politics. Well, look what's going on in the Ukraine. Let's but talk about the Ukraine Let's talk about right the now. Ukraine and Russia. <laughs> no, we're going to talk specifically about this what movie. What about Africa? And Russia's influence into the African political domain. The opium. We've talked about opium. We are the smartest people in the room and we need you to hear (laughs) what we have to say about all this. And we're going to solve it. Just give us another hour. We can solve it. I also really like this movie. I liken it to another movie we've talked about back into our 1999 season of The Insider, which is like another Mm. movie that is like very like this happens and this happens and this happens. And they're trying to prove a thing and ultimately do quote unquote prove that thing and then nobody cares <laughs> like i think that's where the the similarity of those two movies are so strong is that and so like frustrating is that this the central problem here is a guy a uh, conservative christian scientist who goes into <laughs> this southern they're in they're in chile although they never say they're in chile which i think is an odd choice but whatever they, they he goes to chile and he's like just tell me if my if my son is alive or dead, that's all I am here for. And if he's dead, I just want to take the body back to the U.S. And weirdly enough, it's one of those situations where I think if they had just gave him them the body, that kind of would have been it. But the fact is, like, they lie and obfuscate and force him to go through. And it's like, guys, like, just tell me what is going on. Except they keep feeding him these lines that it makes it go for longer and longer and longer. So I think that the two central performances are super strong. I do think it elevates the material to a certain degree of Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek. I really do think that they are these two powerhouses. I, I want to especially call out, I know you you mentioned Sissy Spacek, but I want to especially call out Jack Lemmon specifically in his like final moments mm. on here. There's that moment yeah. where he finally gets the news on the phone at the very end and kind of has his breakdown and goes over and just says those lines like, we're going home. Right. And then she crumples into his chest like that. Jack Lemon does this great oh. thing where it doesn't look like he's acting. <laughs> he's like the, the master of his like this feels like he's just a real person set in a real world circumstance. He's not like over the top. Fanboy. It's great. Ostentatious. I don't disagree, but I, I love when you talk about Jack Lemon. Like the, yeah, he's the adjectives become so flowery, you know, <laughs> master. Uh, you know? Where, where I'm going to kind of criticize the movie in a way. And maybe it's just for the simple fact that it was made in 1982. I think that there is a bit of a naivete about um, on how they present the information. And, and what I mean by that, I know this is based on a true story. I have not read the book that this is based on. I kind of just don't buy specifically of Jack Lemmon's character being like so like 
well, what the government says is correct and everything they say is what we should do. Like he's so by the book and changes his mind so completely by the end where it's like, uh, I, j- I don't really buy that character growth, at least not in the way that this film presents it. it. It's one of those things that whether you're a super conservative or super liberal filmmaker, you get into this trap. It's like, well, if I just present my arguments properly enough, everyone's going to mm-hmm. believe what I believe. And that's almost what it comes across as in, in this movie. Maybe in this situation, you'd be frustrated by the bureaucracy, but I just don't buy you going back and being like, well, now I'm going to like march in a parade and <laughs> be against everything, which is what it kind of feels like by the end of this. I don't know if you agree with that or not. And I can see it. It's melodramatic. I guess the only difference for me is I don't get the feeling at the end that he's going to go and become a communist. Uh, right. I had to Google Christian science, which is pretty funny. You know, the it's power a, it's of It's a wild thing. It's wild. Yeah. So I, I think what's in underpinning, and maybe this was a cult that was more prominent in 1982, that you would understand the subtext of who Christian scientists are. I don't think they're on vogue as much anymore, but I mean, apparently this is a, a faith where you believe that prayer and sort of rational Christian thought trumps science and medicine. So Correct. these are people who are like- Won't um, take, is, is it they don't do surgery or that they just don't take medication? It's one of the two, well, I can't the, remember. The, yeah, the asterisk, like they will allow it, but then they, they won't take, they say not to take pharmaceuticals, but when they do, they try to get off because they believe that it's the prayer that's making them healthy, not the drug. Yeah. I, I don't, it's very convoluted because it actually doesn't make a lot of sense. But the point being, once I Googled it, you know, when he shows up, I mean, my bigger question is how does he have so much fucking influence that he can actually get the US right, government yeah, yeah. To, to talk to him? So I started thinking like, maybe he's a spy. Like in the middle of the movie, I was like, is this guy actually a diplomat or a spy? But it, it wasn't, it's just a man. Um, so that, that was a little white entitlement uh, piece mm-hmm. there, but uh, privilege. Uh, I think they addressed it a little bit, you know, at the end with uh, with that guy, uh, the young man in the stadium. And he's mm-hmm. like, my father's not allowed to make a speech. Right. Um, I mean, that's the thing that there's, there's some really great things here. I think you can see Custer uh, Garvis's like background in documentary in this film mm-hmm. because yes, uh, there's some moments too where he just allows, I mean, Robert Altman would have been experimenting with this for like a decade at this point, but he allows like characters to talk over each other sometimes or interrupt each other. And it does feel like, oh, was that a mistake I just watched? But it kind of does make it feel a little bit more natural as far as the conversation goes. The way that they like punctuate conversations where there's just random gunfire going on in the background. Even when they're walking through the city and there's like people being taken and marched off and there's a great use of like what's going on in the background as well as what's going on uh, in the foreground. Well, even for that, I loved how only the central characters and by the end, basically just Jack Lemmon are the only ones that are emotionally affected by any of the violence. And the depiction of, you know, the US government officials, the soldiers committing the atrocities, nobody, they're all desensitized. And so it really visually makes you connect with Jack Lemmon by the end because he starts off trying to seem so cold hearted and kind of a prick. But as soon as he hears the first gunshot, he does a really great job where you see him completely get undone in one second and kind of realize that he's not in New York City looking for a derelict hippie son. He's like in a war zone. I'm going to bring that up because I don't disagree with you about him being a dick. But I thought this movie had such an interesting outlook. I don't think they ever necessarily call attention to it or mention it. But the way that Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemmon's characters interact uh, when the other person isn't there is very different when they are together. Because you're right, he's Mm -hmm. so antagonistic to her when they first get up and like accusing her and like, you got him into this and like, you're both to blame for this. And he is, he's a fucking jerk. 
but he's so like deferential when he's talking to like the uh the friend. Uh, yeah. The, the friend and the people in government at the very beginning mm-hmm. that turn almost felt so sudden to me because he's been so like nice and open and like seems like he's a good dad and then as soon as he's basically walks in the first time he's this raging asshole I'm like whoa where did this come from but i think that is true for a lot of people you're different personality wise depending on the person you're talking to and the relationship you've had with them i'm actually very sweet with anybody but the two of you yeah, we're all like that. Um, mm. To what degree depends on the relationship, our own pers- personal self-confidence. You know, there's so many sociological and psychological things. I mean, I always rail against social media for this reason, because now we have extra layers to put up fronts for other people. I also, you know, Helen's been watching these really kind of trashy dating shows, you know, mm. Love is Blind and all this other right, stuff right, on right. Netflix. That's, you know, fun uh, throwaway TV. But you see that particularly there where I think the premise of that show is you do these blind dates, but then you live in a commune with all the all the men, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so, you ha- they show the private conversations of how they talk to their bros and then how they appear to women. Right. And if I were watching it, which I, I can't because it makes me upset, it would be interesting to see that on display, which is um, how I, I mean, I try my best not to do this, but how I talk about life with Helen and how I talk about it with you and then how I want to appear on our YouTube channel mm-hmm. might be different. Uh, for some people, it's very, very different. Remember to share this with everyone you know, man. You say that to me every time, even when we're not recording. I'm like, Dave, <laughs> this is weird. What are you doing? <laughs> I, uh, I think what's really interesting about this is the added leverage of uh, blaming somebody for the downfall of someone you love. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's something we talked a little bit about in The Wall, when the finger's pointing outward, you of course are an asshole because you won't take any responsibility of whatever you deem to be the problem. And what's great at the beginning of this, even though it's it's very rough and it's kind of weird because it just jumps out of nowhere, I read this as there's this guy who comes in and he's ready to blame communism, he's ready to blame his son's uh, wife, he's ready to blame right. his son's privilege. Uh, he even has that line about what happened to uh, good old American values of just putting right. your nose to the grindstone. I mean, that's not the line, but uh, that's the tone. Uh, so, he kind of declares it. And I think the the big turn that you felt was a little hard to swallow is uh, how do you break that apart that he can see that the world is not so black and white? And right. uh, and you're right. It's pretty extreme. But I, I, I was okay. I needed that comfort because I knew that the end of this movie was going to be so dull and cynical because we already know nothing changes. It's not the American government's going to be like, you know what? We did fuck this up. Uh, We're going to be better from now on. (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) The one other comparison I wanted to make, uh, (laughs) this is going to be, I I agree, is a weird comparison, but it was the only one I could think of, which is the movie Titanic. So whether (laughs) you like that movie or not, there's one piece of storytelling mechanic that I actually love that that movie does, which is, you know, you start off in, in, in that movie, present day, and then you start telling the story of this grand romance. But then they stay in that until the very end, and then they come back to present day. And I enjoy that because you're not, like, being torn out of the story all the mm. time. You're just letting it play out straight uh, start to finish. So this is leading up to like, again, it's a minor criticism. It's not this major thing that degrades it. It's just like something that I enjoy in films. This one doesn't do that. It's constantly doing the the flashbacks to the thing. Mm -hmm. And I think I would have preferred it, even if they had spent a little bit longer with that first part of the story of like getting up to that point where he disappears and we don't know anymore. 
and then that's it. We never flash back to him ever again past that, and it's just the uncovering of what has happened to this character. I was actually a little bit worried because the very first time it then like cuts over to that to the son character again, and like, oh, are they going to actually show us like right now what happened to him, or is like is this happening right now? You, you eventually mm-hmm. find out that they're telling a story. It's a that's why he's that's right. being brought back in. But it for me, it kills a bit of like the narrative progression a little bit to be constantly flashing back to those moments. I enjoyed the moments where you re-see a scene again and they're like they're talking over top of it and like remembering exactly what was said here and there. Those things work for me. Or when they're going to the eyewitnesses and it's like, it was an armored car. It's like, no, it was a civilian car. No, it was like this. There was this many people there. No, it was this many people here. That's all cool. I just like the extended sequences of going back to the Sun character and, and doing that. It's like, just put that all up front and then bring in Jack Lemmon and have him go through the story to try to uncover what's going on. Yeah, you're right. I I was also getting worried with those, um, you know, I love a good whodunit, right? right? And that sort of Agatha Christie, uh, you know, we saw the knives out, like uh, competing stories. I like how that's visualized. But like you're bringing up, it's a different movie than a political intrigue. And it's yeah. also a different movie than a father-son sort of, or a father-daughter-in-law relationship film. So and it, it's a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? <laughs> You I get, would say mixed uh, bag. I think it's pr- predominantly good. Yeah. There's just these tiny little things that are little nitpicks, I guess, more than anything that I have. But for the most part, I had a great time watching this, to be honest. Uh, you know, maybe this is why he didn't get Best Director. You know, it's written really well. It's acted mm-hmm. really well. The The film as a political statement is quite compelling and powerful. But little things like this, they do stand out. Now, I agree. I totally had the same experience. The first flashback, I was like, oh, he's not dead. He's just on right. a sojourn. <laughs> but why is he with this woman that we think is arrested? Like, I, it's weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are little weird moments. I think you're right. <laughs> Your whole life is little weird moments. There's some other stuff I want to jump into. But to do some of this backstory here for us, this movie opened up on February 12th, 1982. It is currently rated 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. It has a 7.7 on IMDb, a 78 on Metacritic. And over on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 94% from 34 critics and an 85% from 5,000 plus users. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray, although uh, limited quantities, let me tell you that way, because it's like 50, 60 bucks to buy either of those. Uh, It is part of the Criterion Collection, although not currently streaming on the Criterion channel, unfortunately. As soon as, watch, let's see what happens in March. It'll be literally next month. (laughs) It's like the Costa Garvis collection. And it's like, ooh, look at this. I'm like, son of a bitch. Every time. Asterix, go fuck yourself, Kyle and Dave. Yeah. yeah. Its budget was $9.5 million. This is again where I point out that, yes, Giorgio was $15 million. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, they had o- like, so many dead bodies and extras and yeah. tanks and fucking... Come on. Ugh. Its box office was $16 million. That's what it eventually made. It uh, Adjusted for inflation, that's $46 million this movie would have made. So it made a profit. Its plot description is, when an idealistic American writer disappears during the Chilean coup d'etat in September 1973, his wife and father try to find him. We now get to do the my new favorite segment of our show, which is Guess the Tagline. This is the part of the show where I don the jigsaw mask and I make Dave play a game of guessing what the actual tagline to this film was. So I think we should reset that to be more like a game show, right? And then you can mm. put on maybe. Oh, which fine. tagline is it? Well, <laughs> it's a jigsaw. Just the crowd. So which tagline is it? Okay. <laughs> is it 
or what's the tag? <laughs> Anyways, all right, let's keep going. Let's keep Is going. it two people driven to tell the truth, whatever the cost? Is it it doesn't have a tagline, or is it the truth can be adjusted? <laughs> what was the first one? The, the two, two people, people have driven to tell, to the, tell truth? the truth, whatever the cost. Oh my god. I'm going to go with B. No tagline. You son of a bitch. Yeah, you're yeah. right. <laughs> Here's the thing. I was a little bit cheeky this time. That first right. one is actually a real tagline, just not for this movie. Because they don't have to tell the truth. Right, You right. made a mistake. It, it's yeah. from The Insider. That's Unc what the first one yeah. is from. The no. third one she is also uncovered. a real tagline. The truth oh. can be adjusted. Do you want to guess what movie that's from, Dave? A Adjustment Bureau. <laughs> Good, good, good uh, guess. No, that is from Michael Clayton. That's Michael Clayton's oh, tagline. Wow. All right. Well, you're back up on the horse, Dave. Uh, that's great for you. It stars Jack Lemmon as Ed Horman, Sissy Spacek as Beth Horman, John Shea as Charles Horman, and Melanie Mayron as <laughs> Terry Simon. Ah, oh, damn. I thought we were going to have a Horman, uh, no. Horman cast here. D is there anything else we want to say about these actors? Besides, Not you know, really. we talked about Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek already. Yeah, John Shea... Is probably best known as Lex Luthor, if you're old, on Lois and Clark. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He's an interesting guy only in that he grew up in that era where he's peers with Meryl Streep and studied film with Arthur Penn and Sidney Lumet and George Lumet. Roy Hill. He's mm -hmm. he's Lumet, whatever. He's been in the actor's studio. At this point, I think every actor has been in the actor's studio. Um, but <laughs> well, he stood his, outside of it, yeah. His rise to fame was Broadway, uh, Yentl. I don't know. Oh, I'm surprised yeah, yeah. you're not putting that together because you're a nerd. But that seems to kind of put him into the TV realm. So he's he's got a, a bunch of TV of, stuff. His face looks so familiar to me. I have to say, I had to look at that. He was also, I mean, it's Lex Luthor. He was also the dad in Gossip Girl. If you watch that, of course, yeah, we all we all know that, yeah. Dave. Come on, that was Helen's favorite show for a long time. But I think he plays those roles now. I think he just appears in these mm -hmm. uh, character roles. I think he was in Days of. I mean, I I don't know. He's he's been around. He's uh, well known. He's also a theater actor and director, but we don't really know him that well. And then Melanie Joy Mayron, the only thing I can dig up is that she directed uh, Babysitter's Club. Right. Yeah. That's oh, and fun. she was famous for a show called 30-something, but I didn't watch it. She's got yeah. an Emmy for that. That was um, just before my time of watching ah. TV, so. You know, there's no gossip for any of these people, so good. Uh, not Which a means lot of... they have really deep secrets, probably. <laughs> <laughs> a, a cast of nice people. It's a cinematography is by Ricardo Aron Aronovich. The top three films are three films I've never heard of, unfortunately. But his top three movies that uh, he did cinematography for also were The Imposter from 1997, Verida del Sel Sel Selvaggio. <laughs> That's probably totally wrong from 1965, and then Le Temp or Le Temps Retrouve from 1999. <laughs> Never heard of any of these movies, but that is where he is uh, he's known for. Written by Custer Garvis and Donald E. Stewart, based on the book Missing by Thomas Hauser, with uncredited work done by John Nichols, and of course directed by Custer Garvis. So I'm sure people tune into this podcast to hear Dave and I talk about South American politics. Uh, we know this from our <laughs> analytics. Uh, and I'm probably going to disappoint people because I'm just briefly going to go over the fact that this is some stuff you need to know. So there was a coup that happened in Chile in 1973. The then socialist president, Salvador uh, Allende. No, sure. I, I was practicing this before. Allende. 
whatever. Salvador Allende was overthrown by Augusto Pinochet. It was this military takeover of the government, and it was supported by the United States government, but not known at the time that it was supported by the United States government. The U.S. You gotta didn't get want... out those commies, man. Mm-hmm. You got to take the commies out. Have to take out communism by putting in a brutal dictator who's going to kill a bunch of people. It's the American way. Well, first you murder all the people, and then yeah. you put in a dictator who will murder more people because uh, communism. Correct. Now, the U.S. didn't want other people to know about this. So when American journalists started sticking their noses into it, they turned a blind eye to them becoming unalive. If you've watched... <laughs> now, if you've watched this wrong. movie, then you, know some, uh, then you know about this. But they never really mention Chile by name for whatever reason in this movie. And they don't ever specifically mention Pinochet in this movie either. But that is... Uh, what they're talking about. They oh, named the actual Chilean die. towns that they were inside of. So it's not like they're totally hiding the fact, but it's just interesting that they never bring out those names. The writer, Thomas Hauser, publishes this book, The Execution of Charles Horman, An American Sacrifice, in 1978. So he was the reporter who goes down there, kind of investigates all this stuff that's going on, writes this book about it. He had the full cooperation of Charlie's wife and parents. He details exactly what happened in Chile and how the U.S. government didn't exactly act in the best interests of its citizens. And as a brief just tangent, Thomas Hauser, after this, basically becomes like the go-to person to write about boxing. That's where he pivots to <laughs> after this. He doesn't stick with politics. He's yeah. such a fan of the sport of boxing that he's actually been inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame because of all the wow. writing he did on the sport. All right. He did two... Although by, or he did two biographies on Muhammad Ali alone, like he's done a bunch of stuff. This is me editorializing a little bit, but of course we have the success of All the President's Men a few years before this. So movie studios are interested in producing films that have real political intrigue. Kostragarvis is this Greek filmmaker whose most well or most important film at, from this time would have been Z, uh, which we talked about already, um, was the inspiration for The French Connection. This was his first American film. So Universal kind of rolled out the red carpet for him to become a board and create his first film for America. Uh, Kostakarvis' co-writer was Donald Stewart. He had been a journalist for many years, mostly focused on cars. He loved cars and specifically racing. He actually was <laughs> briefly the editor for Motor Life, apparently. But comes over, Good. starts writing for Hollywood. He would win the Oscar for writing this movie. Uh, him and Kostakarvis would share that Oscar whim. He, for, for many people nowadays, his uh, big claim to fame is that he is the writer who adapts the three big Tom Clancy films of the late 80s, early 90s. So, The Hunt for Red October, Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger. He writes all three of those movies. Nice. However, according to an article that I read, so take this with a grain of salt because I couldn't verify this, but perhaps the biggest honor is that the script for this film, the script for Missing, is used in film schools to help students understand plot structure and development, apparently. They wow. use it actually as a, as a case study. Um, we've talked about the two stars of uh, Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek and how they were intersecting at the time. Film was shot in Mexico. I don't think that there was any like major stories that came from the set, at least. It seems it was a pretty standard film production. However, this is where Ooh. things go off the rails, Dave. I don't know if There's you read anything about this after it was released. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. yes. Okay. Yeah. So, I thought you meant like on the production, like no. someone got shot. Oh, that's no, no, okay. no, 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 it's not no, a yeah. Fitzcarraldo situation here, you're, Dave. 
you're gonna uh, give us the explanation why nobody fucking remembers this movie. This film. Most yeah. probably yes. So time it's released, it ruffles more than a few feathers. The then Secretary of State, like six feathers. Yes, it, the birds. Not that they're real. Got really upset by this. The then Secretary of State Alexander Haig, who was appointed by Ronald Reagan, came out and was like, had to be like very mad about the film's allegations that the United States had helped Pinochet get into power. Like he had to really push back on that narrative, even though it was true. Uh, we didn't two, know. We didn't know. Everybody two days. <laughs> two days before its release. The U.S. State Department releases a memo that states the department takes issue with a number of facts in the film and just about all of its conclusions. <laughs> it gets released does like fairly well, um, not amazingly well, but it makes some money, gets nominated for the four Academy Awards. And then in 1983, Nathaniel Davis, the former ambassador to Chile, who I believe is a character in this movie. <laughs> yes. Or is amalgamation of... Um, yeah, under a different name. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Files a lawsuit against Universal Studios. It's then parent company MCA, Thomas Hauser, and Castro Garvis accusing them of libel. This caused the book to be pulled from stores and the movie to be pulled from home video circulation. So it actually, interestingly enough, had already gotten both a Laserdisc and a VHS release. It but both of them were pulled. But yeah, it went missing. I don't know how long the actual case went on for. I do know that the case was eventually dismissed because of the statute of limitations that it expired. The movie then would not be re-released until 2004. 2004 was when a DVD finally came out for this movie. And then when the Criterion Collection picked it up, it got a Blu-ray release a few years after this. That is personally why I think this movie might not be remembered because there was really no way to watch it for like 20 years. What's the power of the u.s political system isn't it mm -hmm. i mean there's no way that that lawsuit was intended to actually recover any funds mm -hmm. and there's an explanation why a civil suit could extend 20 years <laughs> without right. any action it was blacklisted it's kind of like a it's a new form of huac and yeah. uh, what, what's fascinating about this i guess I, I am, i'm answering my own question here again because i look at other things like the watergate scandal like there's a bunch of movies that made out of that that were not gone through the same process of like american government involvement and things that it should not have been involved with but it seemed they were really touchy with the south american thing about overthrowing governments and stuff like that that the reagan administration was also a part of like they really wanted to keep that out of the news as much as possible but it, maybe it's just because no one knew about think, it so they wanted to keep it still that no one knew about it what would also prevent them from continuing to influence foreign affairs right, right. and i think when you have domestic controversy you know, it's not like people were happy about Watergate or right. about JFK getting assassinated. People don't even want to really know uh, other than conspiracy theories about what these things truly mean. But the U.S. Well, Reagan was one who pulled the trigger. The U.S.'s vested interest largely is in manipulating global influence to get things back. And however they do that, whether it's now the internet or if it's uh, yeah, drug trade or right. installing dictators or military operations. I mean, we know now more than ever that uh, their so-called sort of, uh, I don't know, black ops or whatever you want to call it, clandestine operations uh, are, are pretty damaging mm -hmm. <laughs> and very self, uh, self uh, what is it? 
self-rewarding. I, I can't think of a good word. And even with the cynical knowledge, they're still doing it and people still don't really care or uh, want to believe that they're still active in it. I, I I'm trying to think of a film where they point the finger at the US government in this way that was allowed to kind of be a public hit, but I don't know, I'm blanking. I'm sure there's some, but I don't know what uh, what it would take for them to offend the government enough that they would want to make it disappear. I guess I, I don't know how much it pointed at the government, but I mean, the movie JFK was a hit when it when it came out, although that does that lead into the conspiracy theories too a little bit too, and was, yeah, a decade after this yeah. movie. But. Listen, the United States government is always right and to question them means that you're hiding something. You both can look forward to being disappeared. You know, I think maybe what they take the most issue with, uh, A, is it's probably too real as far as the government's process to uh, give people the runaround. But it's probably that last line of the uh, ambassador where he's kind of like, we do this for the American public good. Right. Right. It's like an admission that they actually did you know, make this guy disappear. And if that line isn't in it, I suspect, I mean, the movie loses some of its sort of uh, traumatic release because it just becomes too cruel. But at the same time, you know, maybe the government doesn't care if they're just mm -hmm. like, oh, well, we just didn't know. If, if there's a shrug, uh, maybe they don't uh, get too involved, but they do depict the ambassador essentially saying, yeah, we fucking did it, but it's better we did it and you need to go home and uh, shut the fuck up about it. And it's uh, a you know, that's pretty, thing. pretty heavy. There, there is actually a term for this that I don't remember what it's called nowadays, but like whether, again, you are a part of a political party, a religion, whatever it happens to be, even as like bad things come out about it, because you're a part of that group, you have to justify it somehow. Well, right? it's all governments now. So that's why I feel like the ambassador is, is like, well, America's great. So we, because we did this, it was great. Of course we had to do this. Like you can't, you can't tell us was wrong because it's the America and America, what America does is good. So. Yeah. It's this utilitarian uh, lie that mm. some ends justify the means. I think philosophically that system could make sense over the scale of the entirety of human evolution, but right. not in the scale of a 20 year political scheme right. or a five year political scheme. And I think, uh, like you brought up, I mean, we're seeing that in Canadian government now. You know, nobody will cross a floor. I, I don't know what's going on anymore. Nobody can stand up for their own constituents. Politics is not, dem dem there's no democracy in politics anymore. It's, we, we have an elected official here in federal politics, federal government in Calgary, in my writing. Uh, I had to, before I turned off Twitter, he's such a prick. He will not take any ownership of his own personal beliefs. He's, maybe his Twitter is uh, programmed by the conservative mm -hmm. party, but there's no independent thought. There's no discussion about anything. There's no uh, throughput of what the you know people who allegedly voted him in. He doesn't represent any of that. There was a time, I think uh, 20 years ago, uh, I think it's Ontario politics, where there is this one elected official, he's Korean, and <laughs> anytime you watched a video, all he would talk about was like, I don't really care about my party, but I got an email from this old lady the other day and you guys fucked up parking. It was hilarious. So it kind of stands out because you're like, oh, maybe this is what it's supposed to be like, uh, but you don't see that anymore. Nobody will do that. Uh, and if they do, they get kicked out of their party. It's, exactly. it's fucking crazy, that, that, I think that's the, the hard part is my um, heretical opinion, or I don't even think that's the right word, but uh, my unpopular opinion is I don't think there should be political parties. 
<laughs> uh, well. that's my personal opinion but then whatever anyways that's that's a argument for another day but i just think it degrades it right like i'm now i have to vote the way my party votes or else i get kicked out of it and then i can't do what i want to do i don't get the funds to run again right but i like your your example there how interesting would it be or could it be and again this is the pollyanna side coming out in myself how cool could it be if it was like individuals running this is what my writing is interested in and i'm going to try and fight as hard as i can so that locally we can make a global change that will benefit everyone but who knows that actually, would actually you know work. to relate it back to this film i think what's happened is too much of politics now is this aggrandized self-important idea that the government of canada is meant to represent Canada's global interests. And so our constituents don't really understand because all they care about is their parking squabbles and their, you know, whether they pay tax. But we're really like kind of like this ambassador, we're concerned about the future of Canada and how we're gonna and it's all bullshit because nobody can predict any of it anyways. If if the US collapses as it's doing, Canada doesn't fucking matter to anybody in the world, frankly. <laughs> and so uh, all of this, you know, political fucking rhetoric that's created these political parties and all this funding is uh, underpinned by these uh, weird cynical uh, puppeteer mentality that they're actually doing this for the greater good. And the reality is they have no no interest in the greater good. They're just waiting for their next paycheck. Uh, bunch of fucking assholes. Yeah, the lot of them. Well, I mean, I, I, again, I think that does actually relate to this film quite well because what is so true about what you just stated is that on a fundamental level, yes, like a, a federal government or a national government has to be concerned with a bunch of things, right? Security, the machinations of our neighbors, like whatever it happens to be. Yet on a very real personal level, all that really doesn't matter to you as an individual if your you know street is like so potholed up that you can't even drive your car down it. Like that is what the most important thing is to you at that point. And in this film, it's like the ambassador can make that argument. It's like, yeah, but isn't this great for America that this new dictator is is here in power because it means this thing and trade will open up, which is true. But the reality is that he's killing people in the streets. <laughs> and that's what's really important to this individual that's going on trying to live there. We have to find a way to understand that all of these privileges and freedoms, and this is so dramatic, but, you know, it's all bought with blood, mm -hmm. right? And we even saw that in Godfather too. you know, this idea that these big political upheavals, A, are not influenced by America as a total naive bullshit idea. And B, I mean, their justification, they being a government, that we can only uh, have this wealth at the cost of another human being is actually fundamentally true, which sucks. You know, if, if there are no third world countries, there are no first world countries. So we have to unfortunately take advantage of other people to win at life. The social push and the, the recent, you know, idealism of communism is this belief that we can avoid that. I don't know if that's actually strictly I mean, true, but just to push back a little bit again, I always have to come out and say, it's not that I'm like super socialist myself. Even though I live in Canada and I am afforded a lot of benefits of having some socialistic practices in place, I don't think people are pushing for communism. I think they're pu pushing for socialism, which is two different things that we maybe a subtle difference, yeah. but it is a difference. That's true. They do use, I mean, I, in the most judge, judgmental way possible, I think modern 
polarized political rhetoric has been using the term communist A incorrectly, but B more publicly, right. maybe just to press the issue. I also uh, agree. I think that what people really want to believe in is a type of socialism. But if we've learned anything like in this film or our previous existence since, uh, I don't know, 1918, you know, socialism doesn't work because <laughs> nobody will pay for it, right? It's, I don't think, I don't, sucks, think uh, I don't think capitalism is working either. But I don't know exactly. What the, I don't know what the, so what's I don't the know what the system is. Yeah, what's the middle? Yeah. Here, here's just Dictators. to finish this off here, though. Here's the wild thing. Uh, again, I don't know if you read about, but the wild thing is that in real life, the body is is brought back. Of Charlie Horman is brought back oh, to the yeah, United States, just like that. it is in this film. Yeah. But, but through but, genetic testing, a few years later, it's discovered that that body was not Charlie Horman. <laughs> so. Like what? What the f? There. Um, they sent it back like nine months later, so they couldn't, couldn't identify do, correctly. Correct. Yeah. It's they fucking disgusting. Intentionally man. kept it back so it decomposed enough so that uh, they couldn't actually identify the body. But, so here's where it comes down with. At least in this particular case of Charlie Horman, it is not exactly known how much the U.S. government allowed Charlie to be murdered. It could be that they just allowed it to happen and didn't intervene, or it could be that they actively went after him and had him murdered because he was investigating and writing stuff about it. So in one way, the truth that we'll never, I probably fully know, I think the movie does a good job of having that bit of doubt hanging over. And I don't think ultimately it even matters. Either they intentionally went after him or they were negligent and were like, we don't have to worry about this. And if he's killed, who cares? It's it's a win-win either way. You know, it'd be an interesting angle I just thought of because I was just thinking like there are other political prisoners and people that are executed where this story doesn't surface. You know, what if this guy was actually a CIA operative or something like that? Mm -hmm. You know, and the cover-up is really that he's actually this key to revealing this influence, not that right. he's just a journalist. Because people, you know, if I think about it, yeah, people people die all the time, you know, and there is not this much uh, controversy around recovering a body or explaining mm -hmm. the qu questionable circumstances of people disappearing. It is fascinating now that we're talking about it too much. Why is this guy so important that it turned well, into- Well, I, th I think that's the central question. And again, this movie's not interested necessarily in answering that no. question, but it does make you questions. Like the government is really butthurt over this. Like this, the US <laughs> yeah. government is like- going to like you know 1982 i'm talking about coming out and issuing statements and the state department like we had nothing to do with this this is all this is all wrong you only do that if it's like we have to get ahead of this or we have to yeah, squash yeah. this down because you're right if it really is like like if you i don't know went down to chile now and got murdered because of some uprising there i'm sorry to say Maybe dave no one's gonna care <laughs> like no one's no. just no one's gonna care yeah if my family flew down like what happened they'd be like well he's an idiot got shot Here's the body. Like, you wouldn't hide it, right? right? And you wouldn't have a government official being like, well, because, I mean, they do show that his friend is uh, had his death kind of hidden, but they discover it and the other friend is released. Like, it's very uh, murky uh, intentionally. Right. They show that this uh, this lost guy drew pictures of ducks. It, it's just, it's such a I weird, I want to it's come a back weird to thing moment, to, try to <laughs> try to guess at, you know? Yeah. Uh, so did I put some other things here before we wrap up for you? Again, sometimes I feel like I overread some of this stuff into it, but those friends that we're talking about, right? We have mm -hmm. the Jack Lemmon's son who is married to Sissy Spacek and they have those two other journalist friends who are living down in Chile with them for you. 
Were those two friends not coded as gay characters to you? Because that's really what it felt like to me. I I completely agree until I didn't understand why. And maybe this is just a, a concession to not offend censors. But, you know, when they're interviewing him post-internment mm-hmm. and he's got like a woman draped over his arm. The right. realist, I, I think his name's David, the character. Uh, that's when I kind of, because the whole way I was like, yeah, they must be a couple. Because it makes so much more sense. They're in the apartment together. They're yeah. trying to comfort each other. They're working together in this like, progressive left-leaning um, magazine There's or whatever. There's some expectations that they have that that's what it yeah. screams to But the thing is, like, if you read up about those real people, like, nuts never mention if that is the case. Although, it's one of those things that, unfortunately, historians at the time love to do, which is, like, they were roommates yeah, yeah. So, well, I don't we know what we read that in means. 1971, it's right. very dangerous to be out, right? right? And 82 is not that much better. And you, you ironically, not ironically, but uh, funnily enough, when we started this, you thought everything would revolve around AIDS and it hasn't at all. But that specter's there well, because... No, 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 no. I'm, I'm saying that everything's going to revolve because, again, it was early days still. But, I mean, it does impact what you're creating if you're scared about it killing you. And the, yeah, and the sort of... Uh, implied rationale of tying this first uh, you know it was a pandemic of this virus that was killing people was that it was tied to being homosexual i mean that specter exists so you know this is a weird i agree with you i was watching this scene uh, particularly when they're caught in the stadium and he's trying to comfort his partner even before when they first you first meet them on the balcony and they have a little interplay about their you know, cover wise or girlfriends, they're very affectionate to each other and trying really hard to support each other. It's not crucial uh, for the narrative of this. It is an interesting right. uh, portrayal of them. You know, maybe we're reading too much. Maybe people, you know, it's like, I don't know, maybe it's me being Asian, but I don't, I've never understood this idea of like meeting a friend and kissing them or like, you know, touching people, even if you're mm-hmm. close. Like, I, I reserve that for my wife. And there, you know, this uh, European thing where everybody's like, you know, rubbing their mouth. And no wonder there's a pandemic. You know, there's this idea that when you meet someone, you have to rub your cheeks against each other. It's it's fucking weird to me. And so maybe, maybe that's normal. Maybe that's normalized, especially in Latin America. You know, there's a thing where people like hug a lot and, and have these like uh, communal experiences. Maybe, maybe they're just supposed to be nice. I think you I are no the weird idea. one. Like, I don't mind... I mean, I guess if it depends on how much touching <laughs> there is. I don't mind hugging or anything like that, but uh, I kind of draw the line of, well, this is me being so judgmental. I apologize if this happens in your family. Yeah, I've been around where like mother, son, or daughter. Uh, oh, like this uh, SNL kiss sketch? On the lips, kissing on the lips? Like, yeah. No. No, I draw the line at that. <laughs> that is no bueno for me. I mean, whatever people do, people do. But I will say for myself... Like, you know, I, I kiss my son, but when he's 18, I don't know if I want to kiss him on the lips. I, I, mean, I don't know if that sounds homophobic. If it was girl or boy, it's just weird. It's my kid, right? Yeah. But um, I kiss my dad on the cheek or something like that if I'm No, medium, well, so. I, I, yeah, I'm not affectionate. See, this thing, you know, I grew up in a unaffectionate home, so I'm, I'm bitter. You're broken. You're a broken, yeah. beaten down man. Um, here's where I become the raging asshole, Dave. What's, what's also communicated through this movie is that the son was this illustrator, was working on this book, was inspired oh, by the little prince. Duck. Yeah. I forget. Oh, I really wish I could remember what Jack Lemmon says, but he looks at the illustrator like, what is this? What is, what is this yeah. for? I would have the same exact reaction because I didn't think it was good. I didn't think the story was good. I didn't think the illustration no. was good. I'm like, yeah, I think that's a, a quality assessment of his output. And I know that makes you sound like an awful person, but it was like, no, no, no. It was not good. I wonder if it's intentionally set up that way because it's fake. Like, you know, he's clearly not actually, it's supposed to be like he's not 
actually a children's writer because they never really reveal that he's a communist journal- journalist, you know? And so the pretext he's is supposed to be left this leaning, kid's book. right? But uh, those pictures are awful. They look like something I would draw. The story is dumb. Even her synopsis of Little Prince, uh, like when she starts going to that, I was like, ah, like why, why are they doing this? It's, yeah. it's not that important. We don't, we don't need it. <laughs> and I thought I was heartless. They do a great job, but with the visceral, mm-hmm. visual gore, and they use it. Especially when they see they're like, there's piles of bodies in that, whatever that yeah, is, the yeah. building that they're in. It's like on the stairs and the hallways. I think it was the basement of the stadium, but yeah. I can't remember. I mean, it's a morgue, but it's done in a very uh, measured way, which is good. It, it plays well with the narrative. It's not like, it's not a gore porn. So it's not like you're just seeing dead bodies all over the, I mean, there are dead bodies throughout the film, mm-hmm. but that morgue scene is particularly uh, impactful. It reminded me, I can't remember which book it was I was reading, but my sister refers me occasionally to these books about Korea, and one of them opens up uh, in the 80s because there were purgings uh, in the in Korea during the dictatorship over there. Imagine, it's a, apparently, Kyle, dictators are bad. Who knew? <laughs> Who would have knew? Anyways, um, the anecdotal part of that story was this, I think it's a boy who has to kind of work in a uh, makeshift morgue but it's not refrigerated so the whole idea is for a year you like pile up hundreds of dead bodies in a day and people have to get there before they start to rot and then the people that work there just live through that because many of them are just untagged and they have to just try to pull back a sheet and hope that whatever's left is recognizable and this is something people live through so when this scene came out i was just like wow you know i mean this is this is how it's like to live Mm-hmm. in an actual war zone you know it's just Awful. it's just there it's yeah. just that effective thing too when they're in that morgue they discover the old reporter friend and then they look up mm-hmm. and the camera tilts up and, and you like see the almost, shadows of the more dead yeah. bodies i thought that was like really well done the other yeah. big one too like again it does this really good thing uh, as our script writing goes which is like um set up uh, set up and pay off because at the very very beginning they're rushing to that hotel or back home it's getting dark and the curfew is starting, mm. that sort of thing. And the curfew starts when it's still light out. And Sissy Spacey gets caught outside when it's nighttime. Yes. So it's like even more like, uh, they weren't supposed to be outside when it was daytime out. So the fact that it's night yeah. out has to be wild. And it's like horses running down and <laughs> them chasing after it with like rifles and stuff. It's like, this is bonkers what is going on right now. I love the fact that they play the song My Dingling at one point in the uh, early what? part of the film, which is, I just think, a wild song to play at a party um do you know the song my ding-a-ling no oh my god dave i discovered this song i don't even know why it was played it was like a family thing we listened to it once it is literally a guy talking about his penis but it's like he calls it my ding-a-ling it's weird the last thing i was going to say is this i think this is probably why i had that kind of slight negative thing at the very very end because why it becomes a little bit naive as far as its storytelling goes is Jack Lemon ends it off is like what I appreciate about America is that we can still put people like you in jail I'm like mm-hmm. good luck because I doubt he's ever going to go to jail uh, as has been evidence for the last 40 years of people doing awful things and never being held accountable for it yeah I totally agree I, I was turned off by that they do try to come back with the voiceover that they did not go to jail, but it's, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, it gets a little arrested development because I think it was a miss. I don't know how you end that conversation yeah, without it being kind of too dark, but we've been talking, you and I, about the idea of a tragedy. And it's, it's hard to navigate writing something like this, I think. You know, it's such a dark 
horrifying reality. And I mean, this is all based on a true story. In 1982, they already know that it didn't turn out well. Right. <laughs> what do you do at the end? You can't have an all-American finish where like, and they got him. You know, this, or I was kind of half expecting like, is someone going to shoot this CIA operative in the face just to right. relieve just to some have, attention? In? Yeah, have that yeah. good ending. It's it like, doesn't no. happen. So, this is a problem with films like this. Uh, but like so many films we watched last year, however icky I feel getting up from the chair, we'll probably still think about this movie i suspect it'll come up in the future i think that's the thing i think this is a movie that is i mean is it gonna change people's minds i i don't mm. think so i don't i think it's a bit too sanitized for that but it's just like a, a drama of watching a, a man and his daughter-in-law trying to uncover the truth and and uh recover this dead body i think it's it's good like it, it does a good job at being what it is um it just doesn't try to be more than that it's just a solid entry into this type of film you know what elevates the acting for me is um it's not the politics it's watching jack lemon acknowledge his son and his daughter-in-law um mm -hmm. through her courageous actions uh, right. and her ability to kind of push back so you know what i mean i'll retract the previous statement i don't know if i'll actually remember the film as an entirety but uh, i did like the performance a lot and i i was uh i think it was really well performed uh, i'm starting to understand now at the beginning why maybe you can have a best picture without a best director we're picking right. this thing apart actually <laughs> uh, trying well, not to but uh, that's a that's up. a dave way we're done here so the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up here so let's get into critics choice the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time this film was released so both roger ebert and pauline kale went and saw this movie Roger Ebert said, or wrote, by the time, I should say, he gave this three out of four stars. But he writes, by the time Missing begins its crucial last half hour, a strange thing has happened. We care about this dead American and his wife and father, almost despite the movie. The performances of Spacek and Lemon carry us through the movie's undisciplined stylistic displays. But at the end of the film, there isn't the instant discharge of anger we felt at the end of Costa Garvis's The Great Z, because the narrative juggernaut of that film has been traded in for what is basically just a fancy meditation on the nature of reality. Something happened to the missing young man. His story is based on real events. Somebody was guilty and somebody was lying and he was indeed killed. But missing loses its way on the road to those conclusions. And at the end, Lemon and Spacek seem almost to mourn alone, while the crew is busy looking for its next shot. A lot of, uh, it's like, is it overwritten? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit. Uh, I think he's mentioning like the performances are good, like there's some oh, no. elements in this that <laughs> work well, but it's, yeah, it uh, ultimately undermines itself. Pauline Kale did not like this movie at all. Making his first American movie, Kasha Garvis uses the same approach that American directors have often used when they wanted to teach us something. He has given his accusatory political thriller a soft, warm, and human center. As the businessman Ed Horman, the father of a young American who has disappeared in Chile during the days after the military coup that overthrew Allende, Jack Lemmon is playing a variant of the role that Jane Fonda played in films such as Coming Home and The China Syndrome. He's the naive, protected, non-political conservative who is radicalized, or at least re-educated, by what he learns. And Lemon is so eager to have depth that he uh, looks on a serious role as a chance for redemption. 
Ed arrives in Santiago to look for his son, and we are stuck observing each step in the calibrated process of his learning to distrust American and Chilean officials and coming closer to the counterculture values of his son's wife, Sissy Spacek, who's fresh and natural. Custer Garvis's antipathy to Americans appears to be so deep-seated that he can't create American characters. The only real filmmaking is in the backgrounds, in the anxious, ominous atmosphere of a city under martial law. The sirens, the tanks, the helicopters, the feeling of abnormal silences and of random terror. That's in part what she wrote. You know, it's interesting. It's uh, at the beginning, we talked about this is technically two movies. And I feel like Ebert watched one mm. and Pauline Kale watched the other. Sure. Yeah, right? yeah. 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 It's one of those things when you read both of them together is that oftentimes, even when they have like separate opinions, I actually agree with both of them in, in parts. Mm -hmm. But I think mm -hmm. it's right. It's how you come into a film and like, this is what I'm viewing this through, or the lens I'm viewing it through, or this is the storyline that I'm kind of observing. But you're right, when there's like this type of film where you could look at it in two different ways, you're going to come at it from two different angles. Well, Dave, to answer the question we ask every week, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? I think it does. I, I, I enjoyed watching it. I suspect, it's hard to tell, because, you know, the cinematography is dated. You know, this is definitely a movie mm -hmm. shot in the 80s. But I suspect the story's strong enough that a modern audience would sit through it whether they would enjoy it it's always hard to tell it's relevant i think in that we're still cynical and the government still does this shit right. so we can still believe this happens that's the thing i think that i noticed the most is like you could remake this film very easily today like, oh yeah you don't even have to change the script all that much like you, no. you just cast uh, actors of the day and throw it out there and it's like yeah it's still relevant yeah the, it, exactly. It's happening. You, I mean, I don't know. Maybe a piece at that point, but still. Yeah. If you want to not offend people, you can make up a fake Latin country, but this would absolutely hold up. You don't even need iPhones or like to change the technology. This mm. is all can be done uh, very simply because the beats of the story, sadly, um, happen every day. Well, that's the thing. Like, if they were not going to adapt the real story again, they just wanted to use this as a template for a new film, which you could do. It would be something to do with in, in the Middle East is probably how they would do it. They refocus into a different area. That's, well, that's the crazy thing is, I mean, just in terms of relevance, you wouldn't even need to. They would because right. you know, we have to, our own new HUAC, whatever they'll turn out to be called. We have a propaganda arm of Hollywood that's making sure we're keeping relevant. Uh, but you could put this anywhere, you know? You could stage this in any country uh, or made-up country uh, under any kind of uh, regime because the, the story works. Mm -hmm. It's pretty scary. It's pretty normalized now. I'm a yes and yes too, though. I, I think it holds up. I think it's still relevant. I think, yeah, a modern audience would still be able to watch this today. So, um, yeah, it's good. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It won one. It won for Best Adapted Screenplay. It was also nominated for seven BAFTA Awards. It won two of them for Best Screenplay and Best Editing. It also won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Uh, it tied with the film Yol or Y'all, which I'm not Yol. familiar with either. And, and Jack Lemmon also won Best Actor at Cannes that year, too. Mm. So it did, it did win a bunch of, uh, of awards. Critics other than Pauline Kael liked Correct. it. Correct. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm very interested what you're going to rate this film. But before we rate this film, that is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. 
You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release two videos each week on our YouTube channel that matches the movie we're talking about that week. So on Mondays, we react to the trailer, and then on Fridays, it's a mini review of that film. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave, out of five, what would you give Missing? I think the film and the performances are different. I think the two different narratives are different. It's hard. My need for a resolution in my own family life colors (laughs) this. And I watched the film, I think, Ebert's watching, uh, needing that catharsis, if you will, of having a parent acknowledge Mm -hmm. their kid. So... It bumps up, but the more we talk about, it, I'm worried because there, you know, when you finish this film, there's these little things where you're like, ugh, you know, there's a lot of couple mm-hmm. of ugh moments. So, I think I'm gonna go with a 3.5. Uh, okay. I want it to be like up at a four, but it's tough. This is a this is an mm-hmm. interesting movie. I, I'm I'm so glad that we watched it. Like it is one of those things. Like oh, I would I don't think I ever would have watched this movie without this podcast. Like ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I'm happy that way. I am giving it a four. Like I said, I think it's strong. I think it's a strong entry into this. Is it one of the best movies of all time? No, I would never go that far. But yeah. it's one of those things that I think it's extremely watchable. This is on somehow. Someone was watching. I'm like, yeah, I'll sit down and watch this uh, with you. That does mean that it's going to average a 3.75. So it'll be rounded into 3.5 when we go over onto Letterboxd. For the time being, it is going to enter our list at the number one position. I feel this is going to happen a lot over the next like six or seven weeks where a lot of films are going to probably be our new number one film. But maybe not. We'll see. Maybe I'm wrong in my uh, in my supposition there. But Good. Yeah. All right. So, Dave, I'm interested in what we're going to be watching next week. I have kind of a good idea because it looks like we're getting into the Best Picture nominees for the next few weeks. So I'm just going to push this button here. I'm correct. We You actually mentioned Sidney Lumet here just earlier in the episode, so we're going to watch one of his films, The Verdict. Uh, Paul Newman. Have you seen The Verdict? No. Okay. I, ha- I don't think I have. I no. have seen The Verdict, so I have actually seen this movie before. It's actually interesting that we're going to watch this back-to-back with Missing, because it's like centered around two actors in their late 50s, kind of nearing the end of like their like starring roles, like being the, the name mm-hmm. above the mm-hmm. title, and both being nominated for Best Picture. So Paul Newman's great. So we'll get to talk a little bit more about Paul Newman and we'll probably have to bring up Message in a Bottle again because that's the last time we talked about Paul Newman. Oh, man. Remember think, Message uh, in a Bottle, Dave? <laughs> no. I, I actually, I forgot he was in it and yeah. that's not a slight to He's Paul Newman. He's the best Newman. part in I just, it. But, uh, I blacked out. Yeah, yeah. I've blacked that, uh, I blacked that out. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot for bringing that back up. Oh, what's that? Oh, okay. Yeah, Dee Dee wants to go and look at your teeth, Dave. You want to just go and... You flash your teeth? No, my teeth are doing pretty fine, so oh. I'm going to skip it. Uh, yeah. I've been drinking nothing but Coke since we got back here, so. <laughs> I, I've, been, uh, I've been secretly just drinking water. No. <laughs> How dare Wait, you? Do you? Yeah, can you, is water potable in 1982? Not t- in England. Of course, you, you have like faucets. You can drink water in 1982. Uh-huh. It wasn't like outhouses still. What are you talking about? In England, you know, they have a two-tap system because the hot water is still not potable, right? Hmm. 
I don't know. What state are we in, right? I mean, we're there's a lot of states Dave. where... We're in Calgary. Oh, yeah. Calgary, you have to treat the water, right? Because it comes from a river. I drink it's it straight from the tap all the time, so I don't know. Yeah, well, now, well, we, I mean, in 1982. None of this is in the episode, Dave. We're done. Have to filter it. <laughs> I call Ronald Reagan daddy.